Welcome to The Analysis. I'm Greg Wilpert. Presidential elections took place in two Latin American countries last Sunday. While Ecuador held a runoff vote, Peru had a first-round vote. In this segment, we'll take a closer look at the elections in Ecuador. There, Guillermo Lasso, a conservative banker and one of Ecuador's richest individuals, won the election with 52.4% of the vote. The result was a bit of a surprise because polls had given Lasso's opponent, the leftist economist Andres Arauz, a narrow lead in the weeks before the vote. However, a third candidate, Yacu Perez, who did not make the runoff and who ran for the indigenous party Pachacutic as an eco-socialist candidate, urged his followers to spoil the ballots in protest against both runoff candidates. Joining me now to discuss the election result is Leonardo Flores. Leo is, a Latin, is the Latin America campaign coordinator with the peace and human rights group Code Pink. He joins us from Quito, Ecuador, where he was an official election observer uh, for the recent election. Thanks for joining me today, Leo. Thanks so much for the invitation, Greg. So let's start with Sunday's election itself. Uh, you were there to observe. What was the voting process like? Um, and uh, were there any indications of fraud as some people warned before the vote took place? The voting process was actually very smooth. Uh, it took voters maybe between one to two minutes, mostly actually less uh, to, to carry out the whole process starting from you know presenting their ID to actually voting and putting the ballot uh, in the box and signing their name and putting their thumbprint. Uh, we saw lots of very high turnout throughout the day. I think turnout reached around 83 uh, percent. I don't know if that's the final figure, but that's the figure I saw late last night. And there were no irregularities at all that we witnessed. I mean, very small ones, but nothing to suggest uh, system, systemic fraud. Uh, we were pretty confident that the vote and the count itself were carried out in a free and fair manner. So, um, as I said in my intro, the defeat of Arauz was a bit of a surprise, at least if one was following the opinion polls uh, before the election. And also, if you look at the electoral math, that is adding up Arauz's votes from the first round and Jaco Perez's votes from the first round, um, they would, should have gotten over 50% if you add them up, but obviously it doesn't always work out that way. Now, on the other hand, one could also say that it was almost a miracle that Arauz got so close to being elected. Uh, considering how he and his movement were treated by the media, by the electoral authorities, and by the judicial system. Uh, talk about the obstacles that Arauz faced in the lead-up to this election. Yeah, I mean, while yesterday itself was free and fair, the run-up to the election was certainly not. Uh, I think, uh, excuse me, Andres Arauz had, was facing a very uneven playing field, uh, and it goes back to, and it starts really with media coverage. Uh, here in, in Ecuador, the mainstream media is completely corporate, and it was backing Lasso basically 100%. It was very difficult for the Arauz campaign to get airtime. Certainly didn't get anywhere close to equal airtime. Uh, and the problems go back much further, actually. So as we know, in Ecuador, there's been a massive campaign of lawfare against the left, particularly against uh, what's known as the Citizens' Revolution, which is the movement behind Andres Arauz. Uh, and so, for example, you know, the uh, Andres Adaus's actual party was used to be called Alianza País, the Country Alliance. 
and it was banned from participating in these elections. They tried to form a new party, and they were again rejected by the electoral authorities. Eventually, they managed to run under, under UNES, uh, Union for Hope, uh, because this was a party that already existed, and basically it offered the slot to Andres Arauz. Uh, on top of that, we saw kind of very arbitrary decisions by the electoral authorities. Uh, Rafael Correa, the former president, president from 2007 to 2017, someone who brought economic stability and political stability to Ecuador. And really just we saw huge economic growth, redistribution of wealth, and a huge increase in, in spending in healthcare, infrastructure, education, everything that really, you know, everyday citizens uh, could hope for in a government. He was not allowed to run for the vice presidency. Not only that, the Arauz campaign was forbidden from using his image, uh, but just to get to give folks an idea of how unfair this was, the Arauz campaign was not allowed to use Correa's image, but other campaigns were allowed to were were allowed to use Correa's image in a negative way to attack Arauz. Uh, so uh, this sort of arbitrariness really harmed the Arauz campaign. Also, you know, this the campaign w was only registered officially as a candidate back in December 2020, whereas other parties had, you know, had a four or five month head start in terms of campaigning. So despite the fact that, you know, coming into this week, we, we were looking at a possible House victory given the polls. Uh, it's not that surprising that, that he lost, given how, how the odds were stacked against him and his party. Uh, and in fact, I think, you know, the, the showing wasn't so bad, given everything that occurred. Right. Now, another obstacle that Arauz faced, as I mentioned, was that Ecuador's left went into this election very divided. Uh, so on the one hand, you had Andres Arauz, who carried the banner of, as you mentioned, uh, form, former President Rafael Correa and the Citizens Movement. Um, our citizens' revolution, I mean. And on the other hand, there was Jakub Perez, who, was the, who is the leader of the indigenous party Pachakutik, and also, but he's also a harsh critic of Korea and also of Arauz. Now, Perez, Jakub um, uh, Perez narrowly missed the runoff vote when he got only a fraction of a percentage point less than uh, Lasso in the first round. Uh, and they both got around 19.4%. So in theory, if all, as I said, if all of Perez voters had voted for Arauz in the second round, Arauz should have won. But uh, Perez urged his supporters to abstain by spoiling their ballots. And spoiling, spoiled ballots, uh, according to the figures I saw um, just recently, made up about 16% of the votes cast. And then, as you mentioned, abstention was another 17%. So you could say that participation was only 68% if you add that up together. Now, why do you think it did um, Perez call for abstention? I mean, what was the point here? Right, so it, it's a little complicated, right? So Pachacutic and, and the UNES, which is Arauz's party, uh, we were talking to some experts earlier this week, and it, it really they're very close in terms of the, the political agenda they were seeking for the next four years. I heard one, one expert say that, you know, their agendas were 80% similar. Uh, the problem comes with Jakub Perez, who is really, kind of different from his base ideologically. He's actually, he calls himself an eco-socialist, but really he's he's also got some very strong neoliberal tendencies. So for example, Jacob Perez is someone who did not really uh, come out against the IMF deal, an IMF deal that Ecuador signed uh, in 2019. This IMF deal led to the October 2019 uprising in Ecuador, where we saw thousands of people on the streets, social movements taking over the streets, and massive government repression against those protesters, leaving 11 people dead. Uh, and so there's this 
disconnect between Perez and the rest of Pachacutic. Uh, Pachacutic is supposed to be the political wing of the largest social movement in Ecuador, the most important one called CONAI, which is the Confederation of Indigenous Nationalities of Ecuador. Indigenous people make up roughly between 15 to 20 percent of the population. And there had been tensions between uh, this particular social movement and the Correa government uh, through 2007-2017. And unfortunately, those tensions really weren't able to be overcome for this uh, campaign. Although you did have the president of the CONAI uh, endorse Andres Arauz about a week, 10 days before the election. Uh, I think by then the damage was already done and there was a lot of kind of distrust and suspicion on both sides. So when Yacu Perez calls for a null vote, uh, I think that was kind of the signal for people who support Pachacutic and Conai to, to basically spoil their ballots and vote for, no, or vote for none of the above. Uh, between the first round and the second round of voting, there was a 600,000 increase, 600,000 more, 600, more people voted blank or null compared to in the first round. So there's always a big sector of the population that votes blank or null, but the call for Yacupetis really did harm the left. Uh, from, uh, But also, I think, you know, it, you can't, only blame the people who voted null because they didn't feel represented by the Ed House campaign. And I think they have to look internally at that and figure out a way to move forward. And I think they will. I, one of the things should be noted is that the left still has hope in Ecuador in the sense that between Andres Arauz and Pachacutic and a third party called the Democratic Left, uh, there's a big, strong, clear majority in the National Assembly. They had already been talking about forming an alliance in the National Assembly in the weeks prior to the election. Uh, but again, you know, I think it's all going to depend on the internal dynamics of the Pachacutic party to see what happens going forward, to see if Yacu Pérez is really the, the leader of that, if his values and, and political positions actually align with those of his base, which it's not clear that they do. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Um, well, interesting. Uh, and especially considering that Lasso, who's uh, going to be president now, he will have a, an opposition in the National Assembly. But uh, what do you think that means now in terms of what Lasso might actually do? What does that mean for Ecuador moving forward, assuming he gets to uh, has the opportunity to implement his program? Right. And so to talk about Lasso going forward, we have to actually go back a bit to 2017. In 2017, the, the candidate of the left who ended up winning the party, uh, excuse me, the elections was the current president, Benin Moreno. He comes from Correismo. He was the uh, you know, the candidate of Alianza País, the Correa party. But what happened as soon as he was elected was basically there was kind of a bait and switch or almost like a silent coup. Moreno, uh, you know, turned his back on the entire platform he ran on and actually adopts all of the policies that Guillermo Lasso himself was proposing as a candidate in 2017. So you have this big divide immediately uh, kind of on the left because you have the president of the party, you know, turning right wing and adopting a right wing banker's positions. That's why we saw this huge deal with the IMF that was so widely denounced. And when and when Moreno does this, actually, his vice president at the time, Jorge Glass, he kind of blows the whistle and he says, look, this is what's going on. There's been this alliance between the bankers and the president. We have to denounce it as a left wing movement. And then this kicks off kind of a wave of political persecution against leaders of the citizens revolution. Glass was the kind of the first victim of this. He was uh, caught up in this corruption uh, case that really has no merit to it. And yet Glass has been in jail for almost four years now, uh, maybe about three, three years actually. Uh, he's, he's suffering greatly, unfortunately, is what we've, we've heard. And he's very much a political prisoner. So after Glass, uh, goes becomes embroiled in this case. The authorities then turn their eyes onto Rafael Correa, 
they manufacture cases against him. At one point, they accused him of psychic influence, of you know, somehow influencing people to become corrupt, even though he was not involved in corruption himself, which is such an absurd proposition. But it really kind of, uh, you know, shines a light on on, on, the, on this dirty lawfare that uh, was was you know being carried out against leaders of the left. And so I should also kind of connect this to the Arauz campaign in the sense that you had all these party leaders either in jail and house arrest or exiled. And so you have this whole leadership that has to leave the country. Then you have Arauz running this campaign without the expertise of people who are, you know, have a long history of winning elections in Ecuador for a left. Uh, so, of course, that also harmed him as well. So when we talk about Lasso, Really, Lasso's almost, in a sense, been governing for four years already. Uh, him and Moreno, are, there's um, there's very little that distinguishes their policies these days. So what we're going to see over the next four years, if indeed Lasso lasts four years, because we have to note that prior to Rafael Correa, uh, Ecuador had something like seven presidents in 10 years. It was a country marked by uh, financial and economic, excuse me, financial and political instability. Uh, Guillermo Lasso was one of the architects of that, of that financial instability in 1999 when he was a minister. So if we're going to see more austerity, neoliberalism, or kind of a return to the Washington consensus of the 90s, which is what this IMF deal uh, really states in terms of, you know, reducing pensions, reducing subsidies to things like fuel and re uh, reducing labor rights. Um, I think that's what we're going to see from uh, Lasso in the next four years. Uh, and I think the victims are going to be uh, ordinary Ecuadorians who are facing not just a horrible pandemic. I mean, Ecuador is one of the worst performing countries in, in Latin America in terms of in terms of the pandemic. But there's also a, a very severe economic crisis right now in the country. That's very obvious if you uh, walk down the streets of Quito and you see shuttered businesses and apartments and stores that are you know for sale or for rent. Hmm. Yeah, that's actually, it's interesting. I mean, I'm going to be doing an interview later about uh, Peru. And of course, then you've got Brazil. Uh, you, all these countries seem to be competing for the worst uh, hit by COVID. And, uh, and they were basically governed by right wing <laughs> presidents. But anyway, um, I just want to I want to switch a little bit to, and look at well, what this means, though, for the region. That is, what does uh, Lasso's presidency uh, mean looking forward uh, for Latin America, but also uh, looking towards Venezuela, which is, after all, your home country. Uh, what do you think it means uh, for yeah, Latin America and for Venezuela in particular? Well, let me first draw a connection between the pandemic and, and what I'm going to give as an answer, right? So one of the things that's happened over the past four or five years is that multilateral institutions in Latin America, in South America in particular, I'm thinking of UNASUR, the Union of South American Nations, CELAC, the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, they've been very weakened, uh, basically as a result of you know, the policies from the Obama and Trump administrations that sought to divide the region because the region was really pushing for regional integration without the United States. Uh, they were forming a block to you know, kind of uh, stand against U.S. hegemony. And so what does this have to do with the pandemic? So if UNASUR had still really been in existence during the pandemic, then the countries of South America would have been able to, first of all, A, negotiate together to buy the vaccines which would have put everyone in a better, stronger negotiating position. And B, they would have been able to coordinate policies, health policies, help each other out. And rather than being each country for themselves, we, should, we would have seen this region work together to, to address the pandemic. And so really, you know, the, the collapse of UNASUR, I personally think has led to the uh, deaths because of the pandemic. And so that's what we're gonna see uh, in terms of uh, 
regional integration, all of those efforts were, if at outset one, we, we, we would have seen Ecuador return to Unasur, return to Salak, possibly even return to ALBA, the Bolivarian Alliance of the Americas, which was you know, an even deeper form of integration that was going on. Uh, but with Lasso's victory, uh, Ecuador is gonna remain firmly in the camp of you know, the United States and really putting US interests over Ecuadorian interests. Uh, we've seen that time and time again in countries that are governed by the right and have strong ties to the United States. Already, Guillermo Lasso has uh, accepted congratulations from Juan Guaido and made it clear that he's going to continue to recognize Juan Guaido as the so-called interim president of Venezuela. Uh, I, you know, if Ecuador, had, if Arauz had won, he would have immediately recognized uh, President Maduro and they, they would have restored relations fully, but there would have been rest fully restored relations between Ecuador and Venezuela, which is really important, not just for Venezuela, but for, because there are lots of Venezuelan migrants here in Ecuador who really need kind of uh, help. And, and that help would be much easier to coordinate if the Ecuadorian authorities and the Venezuelan authorities could work, find a way to work together. Uh, so, so now with the Lasso victory, it's going to in a way, strengthen a bit the OAS, the Organization of American States. And so all of the institutions, the multilateral institutions I mentioned earlier, they served also as a kind of counterweight to the OAS because the OAS is really, can only be understood as a tool of the State Department, a tool of US foreign policy in the region to maintain hegemonic and geopolitical control. Uh, so I think we're gonna see Ecuador firmly in the camp of the United States over the next couple of years. Mm. Okay. Well, I'm going to leave it there for now, um, but I hope we'll come back to you again. Uh, I think you may raise some really important points, especially about the point about the relationship between the COVID crisis and Latin American integration, which is something that hasn't really been said enough, I think. Uh, I was speaking to Leonardo Flores, Latin America campaign coordinator for Code Pink. Uh, thanks, Leo, for having joined me today. Thanks so much, Greg. And thanks to our viewers and listeners for joining the analysis. Please don't forget to head to our website, uh, theanalysis.news, and make a donation so we can continue to provide programming such as this. Mm -hmm.